Well, beautiful to be dedicating children. Uh, a happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers, and many of you serve in the role of mother as well. May you experience God's grace and blessing on your life today and in this coming year. We are in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. The title of this morning's message is An Amazing Reversal and a New Purpose. Do you enjoy designing things? The uh, Porsche is a beautifully designed car. The closest I get to a Porsche is their website or the annual auto show. One thing I know about the Porsche car is that it's designed with a purpose. If you go to their website, you'll read something about the founder, Ferry Porsche. Ferry Porsche's dream of the perfect sports car has always driven us, it says, throughout our history, and we get closer to achieving it every day with every concept, every development, and every model. Along the way, we follow a plan, an ideal that unites us all. We refer to it simply as the Porsche Principle. This principle originates on the racetrack, and it's embodied in every single one of our cars. So the Porsche car, it's all about creative design, it's about innovation, it's about speed, thought. There's thought behind the design of a Porsche. Whether building a car, designing a building, sketching a dress, we sketch things with a particular purpose in mind. According to the scriptures, we have been designed with a purpose. What is that purpose? Another thing I notice about people that own Porsche cars is that they care about placement. They care about where their car sits, whether it be in the garage, on a parking lot, or in the auto show. If God has designed us, does he care where we sit? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, these verses that we studied last week, Paul explored the hopelessness of those outside of Christ, who we were before we knew Christ, the helplessness of the human condition. We were spiritually dead. We were alienated from life with God. We were in bondage, in bondage to the world, this society that's organized in rebellion against God. We were in bondage to the flesh, our fallen, rebellious human nature. We were in bondage to our spiritually powerful opponent, the devil himself. We were condemned under God's wrath. We were helpless, we were hopeless, and Paul made absolutely no attempt in those verses to whitewash our condition outside of Christ. As fallen humanity, we were walking a fateful walk toward our divine judgment without a hope in the world, as he'll say later in chapter 2, without hope and without God in the world. Under the leadership of the prince of the air, bound to fallen self and to the world around us. Desperate. And then we read in verse 4, but God. And today... We'll read verses 4 to 10. Before we read that passage, let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for the joy of coming together as your people, and we recognize in this moment our dependence on you. We need you, Lord, to teach us. And so, Jesus, we ask you to be our teacher. Reveal your truth to us. Help us understand who you have created us to be. And I pray that nothing I say would stray from your word. I pray that your life-giving, your active 
word would spur your people on, inspire them, encourage them, and where needed, Lord, that our thinking would be corrected so that we would be aligned with your thoughts. And so we entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4. In the Old Testament, God just abounds in mercy. He delights in being merciful. The word mercy or compassion, it, it indicates the emotion aroused by someone in need. And not just the emotion, but actually the attempt to relieve that person from his or her trouble. We were condemned. We were down and out. The object of God's wrath. But God being rich in mercy. God's mercy toward us flows from his heart of compassion. Not from anything that we have done to deserve it. Paul continues, because of the great love with which he loved us. God not only sees us as harassed and helpless, alienated and hopeless, God acts on our behalf. The Father acts on our behalf out of his great love. He moves toward us by the Spirit. He rescues us in Christ Jesus. Matthew nine thirty six, for example When he saw the crowds, that's Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, when Jesus sees the crowds, when he looks at them, he feels compassion. His heart is filled with mercy. It's intense. This word compassion, it's a gut-level word. It means that it actually twisted his stomach. And in response to our fallen condition... Our being like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom. He heals the sick. He expels demons. Jesus is the kingdom of God at hand. He reveals the Father, the heart of the Father. And ultimately, he goes to the cross, takes the penalty for our sin upon himself, and triumphs over the powers of evil so that we might be set free. So first point, we were condemned to judgment, but God was rich in mercy. Through Christ Jesus. God was rich in mercy through Christ Jesus. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So Paul goes back to his original thought in verse 1. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. That means that God regenerated us. He gave us new spiritual life within. We were actually raised up together with Christ. We participated in the resurrection of Christ. Paul opens a parenthesis here and he says, by grace you have been saved. He'll come back to this thought in verse 8 for emphasis. Right now we'll just say it's all by grace. It's God's free and unmerited favor, this gift of salvation. Moving on. Second point. We were spiritually dead, but God made us alive together with Christ Jesus. 
It was a work of God, our regeneration. And then verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Because of Christ's resurrection and his ascension, those who look to Jesus for salvation, those who entrust themselves to him, those that enter a relationship with him, they're not just given new spiritual life within in this age. Not only made alive by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, they are actually raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. They share in his destiny. Now let's reflect on this for a moment. Where is Christ seated? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all things. What does it mean for us to be seated with him in the heavenly places? You see, being a follower of Jesus is much more than we often imagine it to be. It's much more than being an admirer of Jesus. It's much more than sticking with a certain conduct of of moral action. It's much more than believing certain biblical truths about Jesus. We're actually united with him. Chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we share in Christ's resurrection. We have been made alive together with Christ. We actually share in the ascension of Christ to heaven. We have been raised with him. And we share in what's referred to as Christ's session, his, his ruling over all things. We are seated with him. This word seated us. When Paul says that we, God has seated us, that actually means that Christ is making us sit down together with him in the heavenly places. Not physically, but spiritually. When we enter the home of a family in another country, often we enter into another culture. And as we enter the home, we ask ourselves the question, I wonder where I should sit And maybe the father of that home has a chair and you say, well, I probably should not sit in the father's chair. Maybe there's a couch. Maybe I should sit there. If you then transition to the meal, if there is a table, you wonder where you should sit at the table. If you're on the floor and you're gathering around the place of eating, you wonder where you should place yourself. And usually the host family will give you a place of honor. When we think of our relationship with Christ, if we were entering the home of Christ, where would he seat us? As followers of Christ, do we live as if we are seated with Christ, or do we live as those who are bound, who are marginalized, those who are enslaved? Does Jesus care where we sit? Imagine you're peeking through the door of the heavenly places, and you say, Lord, I really don't deserve to be here. I'm not worthy. I don't think I should stay. 
And Jesus says, well, why don't you come over here and sit beside me at the table? You see, I'm not ashamed to be your older brother, the firstborn from the dead. And I didn't make that up. That's in Hebrews. I have raised you to sit with me, to take on your new identity, to actually live the blessings. And you ask, well, well, what identity, Jesus? And Jesus would say, I gave my life so that you might be adopted as my son, my daughter. You're a full member of my family. Don't act as if you're not. You are my father's treasured possession, his inheritance. He loves you. You're now seated at my table. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that my Father and I sent to abide in you. So abide in my Father's presence. I've torn open the veil. Enter and sit with my Father. You can call him Abba Father. You have authority over the evil one. The prince of the power of the air. You're actually able to stand against him. So stand up. Stand firm. You've been set free from the dominion of darkness with power to not sin. So often I live as if I actually do not have power to not sin. Paul says, Romans chapter 6 verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace, And not only that, you have wisdom and power to not be overcome by the world around you. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We do not have to live afraid of the world, overwhelmed by the world. We can actually stand in Christ. We have authority over the evil one. James 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's not he might flee. He will. What a liberating truth for the Ephesians who lived in the world of occult practice. And what a liberating truth for us. You see most of our struggle with the world and the prince of the air. It's a mind game. It's not a power game. The enemy will plant seeds of doubt, of anxiety, of fear. And we succumb to those thoughts. They begin to control us. We're enticed. We're drawn. And we begin to believe that what we have received in Jesus is just not enough to stand up and be who we have been called to be. Now, we never sit where Christ sits. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's not our place. But we have been invited to sit with him because of our union with Christ. We were in a state of dishonor, of powerlessness, condemned. But God raised us up to a position of honor and power. John Stott, commenting on these verses, he writes, For if we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, there can be no doubt what we are sitting on, thrones. It bears witness to a living experience that Christ has given us, on the one hand, a new life, with a sensitive awareness of the reality of God and a love for him and for his people. And on the other, a new victory with evil increasingly under our feet. We were dead, but have been made spiritually alive and alert. We were in captivity, but have been enthroned. 
There is no other language that could capture more vividly, more accurately, our access to the authority and power of our Lord than this language seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Every sphere of life, every phase of life, every season of life, every moment of life can be lived under the authority of Christ. Every action can be done in Christ because there is no domain outside of Christ's authority. You see, we just can't live the life that we've been called to unless we come to an understanding of our new identity in Christ, that we have been made alive, that we have been raised up, that we have been seated with Him. We live the Christian life from above, not from below. Now, how do we remember these things? Well, I find more and more that I just need to turn my electronic devices off. (laughs) I need to turn my smartphone off. I need to take a Sabbath. I need to read the Word, sit in it. I need to take a walk in the woods and meditate on it. You see, these disciplines, they're all about placing ourselves in the presence of God, where God has invited us to sit, and we need to remember. As long as my smartphone is on, someone is always asking me to like their Facebook page. As long as it's on, someone is inviting me to Starbucks to enjoy a latte. And sometimes I need to be able to just say, you know what, sometime, right now I am sitting with the Lord, I'm at his table, he has a banquet for me, and my cup actually overflows, the latte can wait. Now why did God lavish so much love upon us? Verse 7, and this is remarkable. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That word immeasurable means outstanding, extraordinary, surpassing, ages. It refers to one age supervening upon another. In other words, just like successive waves of the sea as far into the future as thought can reach. Throughout time, throughout this age, and in eternity, the age to come, the Father wants to have the joy, the joy of revealing to us the incredible, the extraordinary, the surpassing riches of His grace and loving kindness, the depths of which we will never plumb throughout eternity. Chapter 3, Paul, he just gets on his knees and prays for the Ephesians that they'd be strengthened with power in their inner being by the Holy Spirit and that they would have the strength to begin to comprehend how amazing this love of Christ for us is, that this love that just surpasses all knowledge. May we pray that prayer for each other this week. You see, outside of Christ, we were bound. We were bound to the world, the prince of the air and the flesh. But God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Meditate on that this week. What that means for us. My adolescence, I began to uh, question seriously my religious upbringing. I wanted to be free of the constraints of God, of family, of church, of society in general. I was going to create my own identity, be myself, walk the path of freedom. Thankfully, my mother kept praying for me. 
In my rebellion, as I removed the constraints, I tried to fill my soul with other things. That's what we do when we remove God from our lives. And I found myself in a place where I was more and more dead, emotionally, spiritually, free, but dreadfully bound to myself and the things within my soul, bound to the world, bound to the prince of the air. And outside of God, I just couldn't find a reason to live because there isn't one. One of my older brothers, he traveled to Sweden, and there in Scandinavia, he gave his life to Jesus, transformed his life. We roomed together the year following, and I remember being so irritated by him because he would no longer accompany me in my lifestyle, but the peace of God within him was palpable, and I was drawn to it. I wanted it, even though I would never have admitted it to him. During that year... With my brother, I injured my right eye, and I had to go in for surgery. After surgery, I laid on my back for a whole week. That was God's grace to me, just looking at the ceiling, one eye, and I realized I was not seeing clearly. I had a week to contemplate the meaning, the direction of my life. And I came out of that week knowing at least one thing, I had to pursue a new direction. Some months later, I enrolled in a Bible school in Texas. Enrolled as a non-believer. I remember filling out my application form. And they were gracious enough to receive me. They just accepted me lovingly into their community. The director later confided to me that when I showed up on my motorcycle with leathers and long hair, they, as a staff, questioned their decision. (laughs) But one day... In class, as we were studying the book of Galatians, the veil, the spiritual veil that was blocking me, that I could not see, the veil was torn and the truth of God just penetrated my soul that I could only be the person that I was created to be if I surrendered my life to Jesus, my creator. And as I repented and surrendered, I was set free from my flesh, from the world, from the prince of the air. I was bound. But God raised me up and seated me with him. And if you follow Jesus, he has done the same for you. Hallelujah. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Again, this is a repetition from verse 5. It's made for emphasis. Three foundation words are used for the gospel here. Grace, saved, and faith. Some refer to these verses here as the heart of Paul's gospel. By grace, free and unmerited favor. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word saved refers to all that we have received in Jesus, all that is included in this new life in him. We were condemned to divine judgment, but we were shown mercy. We were spiritually dead, but we were made alive in Christ. We were spiritually bound, but we were set free. No longer bound to the flesh, the world, and the devil. We were actually raised up and seated with Christ, transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. And we have been saved. Verb, past tense. With a continuing result. 
In other words, our salvation has been secured. We can be sure of our salvation. No need to work for it. It's through faith. It's, faith is just a humble reliance on Jesus. It's a complete surrender to him. Our faith is a channel through which salvation comes. And then verse 8, the second part. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. That word this, it, goes back, it refers back to the whole process of being saved by grace through faith. It is all the gift of God, free and unearned. Salvation is never our own doing, never our own achievement, never based on our human performance, never based on us measuring up. Jonathan Edwards, when talking of this, and I'll paraphrase him, he says, we are no more able to be saved from hell by works than a spider's web is able to keep a rock from falling. It's never a result of works. Even our faith, our being drawn to God, our being awakened to him is by grace. Not a result of our works. All for God's glory. We have absolutely no reason to boast based on who we are, where we've come from, based on our contributions. No reason for self-trust or self-confidence. It's never based on our righteousness. You see, there is absolutely no room for pride in heaven. Pride will stay outside the door. There will only be an amazing display of the incomparable greatness of God's grace, mercy, and kindness toward us. A looking away from ourselves and a looking toward Jesus and all of our boasting will be in him and him alone. You see, we were dead. We were bound. We were condemned to an eternity apart from God. But God. And what are we now? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Jesus, we are God's workmanship. What does that mean? That word workmanship means masterpiece. A one-of-a-kind work of art. Each of us uniquely created in Christ for good works to live for God's glory. Created in Christ Jesus, we have been united with him and God has created us from, with, with intention from before the foundation of the world for good works. A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Salvation is recreation. Going back to verse 10 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, the word for, it points to the purpose or goal. From before the foundation of the world, Paul says in chapter 1 verse 4 that we were chosen to be holy in God's presence. From before the foundation of the world, the Lord had you in mind. And verse 10 says that we were designed for God's purposes from beforehand. This is profound. Before our salvation in Christ, At the time of our election, in eternity past, in the mind and counsel of God, our good works were prepared for us by his grace. Amazing. For the praise of his glory. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you think that a Porsche car is designed with purpose and intention, imagine you. Imagine me. Imagine us. God had us in his mind before the foundation of the world. From beforehand, he had good works for us to do. We were created with a purpose. And he wants us to discover that. He has good works for us to walk in, not as grounds for our salvation, not as the basis of our salvation, but as evidence of it, as fruit of it for his glory. So we're not here by chance, praise God. We're not just the result of some evolutionary process trying to discover who we are. God knows us from before the foundation of the world. He knows our name. As parents, one of the wonderful things, one of the wonderful gifts is to be able to guide our children into understanding who they are in Jesus. Because the world will tell them, their own self will tell them, the prince of the air will tell them that they're weak, that they don't measure up, that they're not good enough. But we... If we are walking in Jesus, we are, have the joy, the privilege of introducing them to who they are in Jesus, the person that Christ has created them to be. Tim Keller writes, the question of identity is not who am I, but whose am I? God gives us our own personal name which unfolds through our lives as he shows us the distinct things he has called us to do for him in the world. This is not salvation by works. This is faith working through love, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Our lifestyle is to reflect the, the character of God, his holiness, his love. And in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will begin to outline what it looks like to be in Christ Jesus. Those who follow Jesus forgive others. They walk in purity of speech. They walk in sexual purity. They actually love the church. They love their spouses. They honor God in the home. Children honor their parents. They honor God in the workplace. They stand against the devil's schemes. What are the works that God has called you to, called me to? Tim Allen, he's a famous comedian. He uh, currently stars in the ABC TV series Last Man Standing. His father was tragically killed. Tim's father was killed when he was 11 years old. He struggled to pick up the pieces. He questioned whether he might have been able to save his father had he been there, had he prayed harder. Later in life, not knowing where to turn, he turned to alcohol and drug abuse. And on October 2nd, 1978, his life just took a dramatic turn. He was arrested for possession of cocaine. Later, he pled guilty to charges of drug trafficking, and he spent a number of years in a federal prison. In the midst of his deepest struggles, he found Jesus. An amazing reversal happened in his life. He came alive, and today he affectionately refers to Jesus as the builder. I'll quote him. I always do ask Whoever put me here, the builder, what did you want me to do? 
I just want a relationship with whoever built me. This is too much. Too weird that it happened by accident. I don't believe that I happened by accident. I used to live an isolated existence, even in relationships, but now my family knows me for who I really am. Mostly, that's a good thing. So while I'm still more anxious than I want to be most of the time, I'm far less anxious than I used to be. I was doing comedy clubs, concerts, movies, and TV, and didn't ever realize how fatigued I was or how much I was missing in my life. I always do ask the builder, what do you want me to do? And I do ask it. But you have to be prepared for the answer. Have you and I asked the builder? Lord, what's my name? Who have you created me to be? What are the good works that you have for me to do? You see, we had no reason to live, but God recreated us in Christ Jesus for good works. Walking with Jesus, we discover who we were designed to be. From before the foundation of the world, the Lord had you and I in mind. He knows us. He knows our name. He knows our journey. He knows the good works that he has for us to do today. Are we placing ourselves in the presence of the Lord and asking him to reveal to us who we are and what it is that he has for us to do? We are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his one-of-a-kind work of art. If a Porsche car was designed with intent and purpose, imagine you. Imagine the thought that God put into creating you. And what joy he finds as you walk with him, come to know him, and walk in the good deeds, the good works that he has for you. I urge you, I urge myself to discover that purpose today, this week. Let's pray. If you are grateful just for what Jesus has done for you, I just ask you to raise your hand. It's just as a, a way to express our praise to Jesus. And so, Jesus, we just thank you. You see our hands raised in worship to you. And we thank you, Jesus. We were dead, we were bound, we were condemned, but you have made us alive. You raised us up. We are seated with you in the heavenly places. Oh, Jesus, help us to understand what that means. May we live in the reality, in the truth of our salvation in you. You have created us in you for good works. We are your workmanship, and we thank you. May we live for the praise of your glory, Jesus. Today, this week, for the rest of our life here on earth. And thank you, Father, that you will have the joy, the pleasure of continuing to reveal the depth of your goodness, of your grace, of your kindness, of your mercy as we walk with you through eternity. And so, Lord, we just thank you for what you have called us to, what you have rescued us from. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.